Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we ask all the big questions about work. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to the brilliant Kate Sevilla. I think you're going to really love this one. She is the author of a book called How to Work Without Losing Your Mind and her previous work experience includes, or I should say her CV includes being the managing editor of BuzzFeed UK. She also set up her own thing called Bitch Buzz and was also uh, recruited to head up um, the much-heralded project of Lauren Laverne and Sam Baker called The Pool, which was basically a website with uh, very feminist leaning, and it was much hyped, and then it all kind of went pear-shaped. So um, she has just got so many good perspectives and experiences from uh, that time. So we talk about terrible bosses, we talk about girl-boss culture, dealing with comparison at work, we talk about burnout... Uh, we talk about how to define success and her whole idea around practical dreaming. So loads and loads to get through in this episode. Uh, before we start, I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, just uh, if you can hear that I have a terrible cold, then apologies. <laughs> just like I'm really struggling to do this intro this week. So um, just bear with me. And then the second thing I want to say is if you haven't yet checked out the Beyond Busy 100 episodes, uh, there's a it's a three-part Beyond Busy 100 special where in each episode we're talking to kind of eight or nine people on particular themes. So there's one on productivity, there's one on work-life balance, and one on happiness and success. So if you haven't checked those out, they're all in the feed, and you can find, as always, loads more info at getbeyondbusy.com, along with all the show notes for this episode as well. So without any further ado, let's get into this episode, Kate Sevilla, and uh, we start by talking about her... Uh, challenges of moving house and Wi-Fi and all of that. Uh, but we just go really deep in this one. I think you're going to love it. So let's let's get going, Kate Sevilla. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, okay. I'm all right. Not, not, I can't complain too much, you know. It's been an interesting 12 months or so. But yeah, all good. How are um, you? Yeah, I'm okay. It's I've had a we're going to talk a little bit about burnout later in the show and um I've definitely been on a kind of end of the year uh kind of, you know, mental health. I quite often get SAD in the winter time, you know, yes. seasonal affective disorder and it feels like it's really kicked in full on this year. So I'm kind of on the way back up on the upward trajectory, but yeah, it's been an interesting couple of weeks for me actually. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you just moved house. I just moved house and it's been interesting. And you know how we were talking about everything just happening in real time. My partner needs to come in the room and grab something. So go for it. (laughs) Oh, you need to switch the internet. Switching the internet around. Switching the internet around. These are the realities of recording things at home. I also had to record my audio book in our last house when we were mid, mid move. Which yeah. let me tell you, it was like the last thing to, <laughs> to go. It was like I had all this acoustic paneling up around me, and but you could still hear my neighbor having his conference calls as well, and a, a heavy concentration of like delivery drivers going past my house <laughs> on uh, on their scooters because we li- used to live just off the high street. But um, we should be all good. Better good. And are now. you still you're, are you stealing the neighbor? Well, not stealing, but sharing the neighbor's oh, Wi-Fi. Never stealing. Girl. Never stealing. <laughs> the um, they shared. They shared, but yeah. they have three kids, and so when they get home from school around this exact time, 
<laughs> the internet connection tends to then you notice that they're everyone. all playing call yes. of duty and then you can't talk yes. to anyone yeah exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> Um, and just before we hit record, you were saying you were surprised that your neighbours were so happy to share their internet, but now you're in the <laughs> suburbs, so people are yes. nice. It's We're like in the proper suburbs. We were like <laughs> a bit in the suburbs, but everyone, I think, commuted still and very much had like a, a London mentality. But now that we are farther out into uh, the suburbs, yeah, it's been it's been really lovely. Everyone's been really, really kind and welcoming, which has been nice. Nice. And you mentioned your audiobook. So um, I, I've i never actually recorded an audiobook. So a couple of my books have audiobook versions, but I've got my friend who's an actor who's very good at accents and sounds like me anyway. Um, <laughs> I've had him read them and I sort of took Amazing. advice where basically the advice about authors doing audiobooks was 50-50, split down the middle where it was like, people want to hear you, they want to hear your voice authentically and all that on the one extreme. And the other extreme is there are people whose job it is to read things really eloquently and well. And so leave it to the professionals, Graham. So like, <laughs> to be honest, because I got, I took so much advice and there was no conclusion. I went with the lazy option of, um, giving my unemployed actor friend the work and me not having oh, to sit in a room. The, that's a kindness. That's you were giving him work of to course, do. Very of kind. Course. No, I feel like if, if they thought that perhaps my uh, voice was too irritating or that I wouldn't be the best person <laughs> to read it, I feel that they would have had no problems being like, yeah, we're going to uh, have Carol read this for you. Um, but I think because of the nature of, of my book and because it is, so personal. And then also just, I think the way I write is this weird because I'm from California originally right. and then have lived in the UK for about almost 15 years. Um, I think the way I write has this weird, like my language and everything is this weird kind of combination of both cultures. So I think having that done in either accent wouldn't work either. So I mean, you kind of have to have a weird hybrid of me doing it. <laughs> so I have American friends who tell me that, um, British people swear more than American people, but um, I think you're on like a one person mission to uh, change that stereotype. <laughs> I mean, my poor copy editor uh, at Penguin was like, do, do you have any idea? Like literally he was like, there's about 65 scatological references. <laughs> and I'm like, and then my mind like went, I was like, oh, yeah, like there is. And also I insisted that they put like drawings of like the poop emoji in there as well. <laughs> and yeah, my language is atrocious. So it's just, it is what it is. <laughs> but it's relatable and it fit and it fits to, it fits to the, those moments in the book. You know, you're talking about things like losing your effing job and stuff where it's like, yeah, like that's what, <laughs> that's, that's how feeling. people describe it. But just back to the audiobook. So when you had to read it at home, my my impression of doing the audiobook from having talked to my friend Anthony who read mine is that you sit in a very small room and you read and then you screw up and then they say, no, just go again. And then you just keep going until you get all the way through. But are you doing that at home, like on your own? Like what support did they give you when you were yeah, at home? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And I was, to be honest, I was disappointed because, I mean, obviously, um, trying to publish a book in 2020 is very different than any other year that you might be publishing a book. And so I was like, oh, I really want there to be like this one normal aspect of it. And it just wasn't going to work. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think we were actually in lockdown when, uh, when I recorded it. So it literally was um, me sat in my home office, lucky enough to have a spare room to do that in. And 
had a whole bunch of uh, acoustic paneling up. And then um, because I'm doing a podcast as well, I had enough equipment. And then our producer for the book would then log in remotely and just be on the line with me for day so we got to know each other very well um <laughs> and of course having two people do that remotely um at home with partners and pets and everything and amazon deliveries <laughs> food deliveries was interesting but the best thing is i um if you have a dog uh you might be familiar with um clicker training and so it's like a little device where you just click so anytime okay. that i made a mistake i would go ah oh, sorry and then do the click so that they could see it in the audio oh, file. Interesting. And then I would start again. Yeah. Huh. It was really, it was really interesting. I, I did really, really enjoy it, but it probably would have a bit, been a bit more enjoyable to, to do it in a proper studio. <laughs> and how many days did it take you? It took us all of Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And I think we did a half day Thursday and then a few hours on the Friday as well. Wow. Um, and, okay. and they also had a listener. So they, they had someone getting the files after kind of halfway through each chapter and then they would send through edits. So then I would do the edits as well. It was. Oh, so it'd be like, go back to page 15. Exactly. Paragraph two, read that bit again. <laughs> yes, totally. You've made wow. up a word. Go back. <laughs> so are they a stickler where every single word has to be the same? Is, 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 is there no deviation allowed? It depends on your publisher. And I think for the most part, um, we thought because we had the time, we could just do it exactly to the best of our ability to do it exactly. Um, so I think it kind of depends on on who your publisher is. Some okay. want it exactly the same. Um, some have a bit more flexibility. So I think just because we wanted to cut down on back and forth stuff, we were like, well, let's just, just in case, let's do it kind of as exact as we can get it. Nice. Cool. Um, so we are um, here mainly to talk about your book, How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. Um, I just wanted to start with a couple of bits of your backstory and how you got here. Sure. Um, so you were one of the founding members of BuzzFeed in the UK and yes. then you became their managing editor. Um, yes. So um, what was that like? Because you you were there during a period where it was just kind of high octane growth and just yeah, the, I was it was there like it the was biggest, fun. you know, coolest <laughs> thing on the planet at that time, right? Yeah, it was the first, it was wild. Like it was the first time I had ever worked anywhere that other than like being a barista at Starbucks where people like knew the brand that you were working for and were excited by it. I I remember I was wearing one of our many hoodies walking down by the river and someone was like, oh my God, I love BuzzFeed so much. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) It was really intense. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go get a coffee now. Um, But it was, it was really fun. And, you know, the, in the beginning, it was really fun. It it did get harder um, as the company grew and as things changed, but, you know, I, I had a really I don't want to say special time, but it was a special time when it was like 10 of us and it was new and there was money and snacks and, uh, and they are such a smart, that kind of founding team was such a smart group of people, really, really some of the funniest people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so there was a period there that I really, really enjoyed it. And did you feel as you were working there, like it was a kind of, you know, moment in, time did you feel a kind of sense of history of we're just building something that's so huge and just cutting through in such a big way that must have um it it 
be honest, it felt more like the majority of British media just hated our guts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Like we were not, I think like if it was an article written in some trade mag, it probably would be like uh, more glowing. But I think the reality yeah. is that other journalists just hated our guts for a really long time. And they probably still do. I don't know. But it was, uh, we were not, it didn't feel like we were media darlings by any stretch of the imagination. It felt like there were a lot of people who were like, this stuff is stupid. You spend all your time putting together gifts and uh, it's not proper journalism. So, and listicles. You know. That was the other thing that BuzzFeed became yeah. very known for, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those are actually really hard to write, to do a good one. Yeah. They're not, they're not super easy. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like it was like a, a really big thing or whatever at the time. Yeah. It just felt fun and that people didn't quite get it. And anytime we could get any celebrity to do anything with us, it was like, yes, amazing. Mm. <laughs> and you said as you worked there and it got bigger, and I guess you also went into more senior roles. It mm-hmm. started to be less fun. So what what changed? <laughs> um, I think hmm, I think when you have a, a big American brand that functions in a certain media scape in a different country, that that is really hard to then perfectly replicate in. In, in another country, in another culture that has particularly one like uh, in the UK where you have a very, you have very established newspaper brands, mm. very established. Yeah. And that's not how it is exactly in the States. And I think that when we transitioned more into being a, a news organization that I think they ultimately were hoping to kind of like squash the guardian or really compete with the bbc right. yeah and that was just never gonna happen i think in the the kind of same capacity that they were hoping and they had brilliant journalists the investigations team in the uk um was absolutely brilliant and broke a lot of stories we had you know really fantastic journalists but i think it was just the the the, the tension between the things that ultimately brought in the money and the traffic were then being used to fund a news organization that didn't necessarily bring in the same level of traffic. And you had these two kind of departments and um, kind of philosophies at, at loggerheads all the time. Um, Yeah. And it's a classic BBC dilemma, isn't it? Of um, public service broadcasting. And it's like, you shouldn't be paying Jonathan Ross this much money to do a chat show because, you know, it's about, information and serious and you know education kind of projects and stuff and it's like well yeah but also you need ratings and revenue and stuff to kind of justify yeah the license yeah. to to pay for the boring weather documentary or whatever it is <laughs> yeah yes and that and that it's okay to like both of those things yes yeah. yeah um yeah it, it was i don't know it was it was a very ambitious um company um run by very ambitious people and you know as with any startup uh it's it's hard it's difficult and yeah i don't know i i left before a lot of the redundancies and everything's everything happened yeah uh which i'm I'm glad (laughs) i'm glad (laughs) i wasn't there when they were trying to unionize and everything um because that sounded really 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 difficult yeah but yeah it was a lot of fun for a while (laughs) And then the other the other one I wanted to just talk about before we segue into the book is you were the founder and editor of Bitch Buzz. Yeah. So do you want to just tell that story? 
sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gosh, I've not had to, I've not got to talk about Bitch Buzz in a long time. <laughs> um, so Bitch Buzz was a, an online women's magazine that I founded back in August 2008. Um, and back at this time, <laughs> there were not a lot of like uh, feminist websites that weren't just like purely kind of like academic feminism um, or they were like very specific, like, okay, well, we're only going to talk about news or we're only going to talk about this other thing. And I think in the States, there was Jezebel at the time and feministing.com, um, which was founded by Jessica Valenti. Um, but yeah, I felt like, you know, there's not a website for women that has like, you know, feminist values that will talk about news, but also sex and also baking and also which mm. laptop you should buy yeah. um, at the same time. And so I I started that. Um, I did the sort of editorial to begin with. My husband built us like a custom uh, content management system and was in charge of like mm. making sure the website ran. Um, and I had a, a wonderful team of um, all volunteers. I was always very upfront, like we don't really make any money. <laughs> like, <laughs> any money we do make has to go to like the server because it has to, otherwise it's not going to be around. Mm. Right. Um, but yeah, I had a, a wonderful team and, uh, international side so writers in the states, um, writers kind of throughout Europe, and it's been really interesting because you know, gosh, more than more than ten years on, a lot of them have gone on to do uh, really really amazing things. So for me, that was kind of my way of kind of. I didn't go to university, so and I, when I moved here, it was kind of like. I got a job in blog publishing, but I was like, you know, I, I feel like there's stuff I need to learn and stuff I need to do. So it ultimately it served me really well to kind of be mm. uh, my own version of university. And I got really stuck into like the London startup tech scene back then, which was a lot of fun. And yeah. uh, I learned a lot. And I think it helped to kind of establish my career in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't had done that. Yeah. And it sort of reminds me somewhat of like the blogging era version of the guilty feminists, right? It has the yes. same sort of... Yeah. Same kind of vibe. Right, for yeah. Sure. Kind of founding principles to it. Um, so the one I was going to talk about that I thought would segue nicely into the book, because you talk about it in the book, is working at the pool. Yeah. <laughs> so you uh, got this incredible job working from the pool. It was like your dream job. And then it lasted for how long? <laughs> A hot second, about four months, I think. <laughs> and you got paid for one of those months? I got paid right? for... So I joined in September and I got paid from September to December, but I was legally still employed te or technically still employed until March. Right. Um, so there was three months that I did not get payment for. Yeah. yeah. So do you want to just tell the story? Because it just, it felt like it arrived with this big... Uh, sort of um, <laughs> blaze of publicity and then suddenly it was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the pool was a online women's magazine um, that I think, gosh, I can't even remember when it started. I think it was like 2015, somewhere around there, um, founded by Sam Baker and Lauren Laverne. Um, and I joined in September of 2018 um, to be the new editor in chief. So I was taking over from Sam and they were going through a lot of changes, new owner, um, new CEO. And I had come out of a really crappy working experience 
uh, at Google. And I was so excited to get back to what kind of I felt was uh, my roots um, of working at a, a women's publication online and, you know, getting to be editor in chief of this already established uh, publication was really exciting. And it just all went really terrible. <laughs> I think I was about two months in and I started uh, getting tweets and emails about people, not freelancers, not being paid. And right. which is, you know... So they're coming so, to you because you're the editor-in-chief and saying, hey, yeah, like, I wrote this yeah. thing. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Or I wrote this thing three months ago and mm. I still haven't been paid for it. And I'm like... I don't even know what that is. What did you write? So I was having yeah. like these stuff on social media come through, you know, phone calls with journalists that I knew personally who hadn't been paid. And, you know, it was humiliating and upsetting. And I've been a freelancer. I'm a freelancer now. I know how frustrating it is to yeah, not be yeah. paid on time, you know. So tried to approach that as honestly and transparently as I could. Got into it with the people I needed to get into it with about how important it is that these people get paid and, you know, our reputation is everything. And if we don't have that, we have nothing. Right. And so I was assured it would get sorted out. And then, um, <laughs> and then you lost uh, your effing job as you did. And then I lost my effing job. Um, yeah. And then it just, it happened again, you know, a few, uh, like a month and a half later, same thing, people not, getting paid and there's a lot of other stuff that I can't even really go into, but like yeah. we were supposed to move office and I got a text new year's Eve <laughs> saying, Hey, I know that we packed up the entire office and that we've told everyone that we're moving to this new office in January, but that's not happening. Um, wow. And it just swiftly got a lot worse from there, you know, coming back into an office where there's <laughs> like no heating, <laughs> The cleaner stopped showing up because they weren't getting paid. The milkman stopped showing up because he wasn't getting paid. Like we had to go buy our own toilet paper. Like it was just like, okay, why are we still in this building? What is happening? And not getting any answers. And then things just kind of really swiftly escalated. Yeah. And, you know, same thing with freelancers not getting paid. And then suddenly, oh yeah, you're probably not going to get paid this month either. Um and then that was the case from January to March. Yeah. <laughs> when we were like sent a letter. Sorry, you're no longer employed. Yeah, I caught that because you weren't paying me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's a bit in the book where it, it sounded to me like you were saying, you got this letter saying, we can't afford to pay you. And you say something like, well, I figured because you hadn't paid me for the last two or three months <laughs> either. Yeah. Oh, cheers for that official yeah. declaration of not paying <laughs> I thought it was just, you know, late. <laughs> yeah. So you just, uh, during that time, you're still showing up for work and you're still yeah, there like was, holding out it, hope that it's all going to be okay. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, especially we, we were told that, you know, there were options and that there were people interested in buying it. And could you put together this plan? to help save the company and could you meet with these people right. could you have a phone conversation with this potential investor and i was having to say to my team like if you need to go get another job like go get another job wow. there's no point yeah. in sticking around but equally i'm being told x y and z this is what i'm doing if you would like to stick around i'm not going to ask you to do any more work than we've already done mm. but you know if you do want to stick around we are being told that we have options so yeah. 
And there were some that left. There were some, unfortunately, along with me that stayed for a bit. Um, yeah. And then clearly that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And presumably that had, as you talk about in the book, just a huge impact on you, you know, personally in terms of mental health and identity. And what was the thing that you look back on as the sort of biggest learning through that period? Yeah, I think it I think the thing that actually made it better was the fact that I had had I had come from such a horrendous working experience before that that I had actually built up quite a good level of resilience and understanding and was thankfully already in therapy and understood what was going on with me personally in my last job and then how not to recreate the same things, the things that I could control. There's lots of stuff I couldn't control, but the things that I could control, my reactions to things, the impact I allowed things to have on like my personal self-worth. I went into my job at the pool, having a much better perspective on that. Yeah. You've already had had a situation where you're questioning that link between, you know, identity and work and and those things. Yeah. Yeah. Big time, big time. And Mm. so actually the, the personal sort of attack on my identity and everything that had already happened so that when things went really bad with the pool, I was able to go, you know what? These were not my decisions that led to this. This was Mm -hmm. not my fault. And all I can do now is because I'm inexplicably the face of this thing going down is be as honest and as supportive and try to sort out what it is that I can. So I was able to kind of go into a crisis mode of trying to help and explain and communicate as best as I could. And so the kind of what I was left with afterwards is that I just, it it just signaled to me big time. Okay. Well, you can't do this again. Can you (laughs) like you've, you've gone through a couple of pretty crappy situations. This was terrible. And it could have been a lot ter- more terrible if you hadn't already you know, been at a certain level of resilience. So yeah. why don't we take stock <laughs> and not just rush into another job and kind of recreate this mess again? Because I knew that I wouldn't come out of... If I had to do another thing like that, I wouldn't come out of that very well at all. Yeah. And now you're an author and, and um, authors make loads of money. So it'll all be fine. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm rolling in it. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Writers and authors notoriously just make a lot of money. And so <laughs> that's, that's what I'm doing. Just super rich now. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about how to work without losing your mind. And you, yeah. talk, you talk about that experience in the book. You talk about um, some of your other experiences and and the sort of relationship that we have as individuals to our work. And when you, you know, when people leave Google, they talk about being an ex-Googler and, you know, this way that we attach labels to ourselves based on the work that we do. And I guess back to your BuzzFeed thing of walking around uh, by the river with a hoodie on and people are, hey, you're a BuzzFeed. And like, you know, they, like there is that sort of sense of identity that we get from work. Um and you talked also about Starbucks in the book and your therapist saying to you, have you ever considered why, why you work 110% at Starbucks? And maybe if you worked 80% to your potential there, it might be yeah. still be fine and stuff. Yeah. So do you feel like um, you always have a very personal affinity to places that you work and, and the work that you do? Uh, I did. Yeah. And it, 
was really hard <laughs> to, to live and work like that. And I used to very much, I think I say this in the book as well, I used to very much think of, you know, if I had to write a bio, a short description of myself, it was always my job title. And that I was, you know, managing editor at BuzzFeed UK. Yeah. And that was who I was because I hadn't worked out a lot of other things about myself yet. So I used to very much, I used to be so, so wrapped up in uh, what my boss thought, what my job title was, what my salary was, what my colleagues thought, what my, everything about my job, that was the sort of center, center of my universe, everything orbited around that. Um, my holidays, my time with my husband, my time with my dog, our days off, everything ha- around was around my job because that yeah. was me. I used to think. <laughs> yeah. And was it particularly those negative experiences that changed that? Or do you think there's an age thing as well? Um, you know, I don't, Unfortunately, I don't necessarily think it's an age thing. <laughs> I think obviously experience and age kind of go hand in mm. hand, but I think it was more so. Um, I mean, I've I, I talk very openly about the fact that I've been in psychotherapy for about six and a half years now, um, and I think I had reached a point in both uh, the things kind of aligned quite well with having yeah. you know done enough years of work in in therapy and then having these really really difficult um work situations present themselves and my identity was so tied to these places and while i was trying to develop and understand and listen to what my identity truly was at the same time in therapy if that makes sense so it really is like a a kind of perfect timing thing and then also you know, I was presented with some challenges and I, I personally did as much work as I could on myself to bring myself out the other side of it. So I really kind of had to um, uncouple myself from from those identities uh, and those, those workplaces um, in order to become a fully developed whole person. And I, yeah. and I, and I think I, I write a lot more about, and in the book about, you know, thinking of your life as a whole and yourself as a whole. And that very much is because I've spent so much of my life existing in extremes and thinking of myself one way or another and kind of nothing in between. And now I'm, I'm much more able to kind of exist in, in the gray and, yeah. and where yeah. is more integrated and I'm not just, this is work, Kate, or this is relationship, Kate. I'm a much more, um, I'm a real live girl, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like um, I've done therapy a couple of times in my life, but mainly at sort of crisis points in my life. And hmm. I wonder if anybody who works should just be assigned a therapist, <laughs> you know, like maybe it should just be compulsory. Cause I kind of feel like there's a lot of companies that are willing to spend money on people like me coming in and personal development books and things like that. But actually sometimes what we really need is a therapist, right? I mean, when I was at Google, they were like, have you thought about seeing a counselor? And I was like, I'm already in counseling. Like, I, <laughs> I don't need another one. <laughs> like, I don't need two therapists. My God. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've gotten trouble for saying this before, but I think everyone should be in therapy mm. <laughs> um, in, in some capacity, some way, shape or form, just because, you know, if everyone, if everyone was 
you know, therapy or not, if everyone was working on their self-awareness and analyzing their own behaviors and their own personal boundaries and looking after their own mental health, um, then, you know, if every single person was doing that, well, hey, that'd be a lot better, particularly at work, right? Um, Yeah, it's a difficult one. I think, you know, so much of the problems at work are down to people's individual mental health and lack of boundaries. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about something that, again, you cover in the book, but you've also got this really nice TED talk, which um, just totally ticks the boxes for us on Beyond Busy. So we love to talk about how people define happiness and success. And like literally the name of your TED talk is what does success look like? So, oh yeah, no, that was it. Um, Dream Nation. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've, I've not done a TED talk. I would love oh, to. Okay. But I thought it was a TED talk. For, I mean, it looks, it, it kind of looks like one, yeah. but it's, um, yeah, it was for a conference called um, Dream Nation, which was amazing. And it was, yeah, I spoke about um, what success looks like for you yeah. and how it doesn't always look how you think it will. Yeah. And you say in that talk that success doesn't always look like you think it will and happiness Mm -hmm. doesn't always look like what you think it will and that it won't also look like what your parents think it should look like and so on yeah um do you think so how do you so let's just start with where where you're at right now like how do you define happiness and success for you at the Mm. moment what's what's so interesting i was like when did i do that talk that was like (laughs) I think it was like 2015 or something. You were at BuzzFeed, so I think. When you, I was when you at BuzzFeed yeah. then, yes. And I think, uh, I think I thought that I was very successful <laughs> <laughs> because I was at a place that I uh, really enjoyed and had a job title I really liked, and it felt like that was the right thing that I should be doing. Um, and it felt, and I, I think at that point I did feel, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't an unsuccessful point that I was at in my career by any means. And I think that I. I knew that I would go on to do other things, but that, you know, the point that I was at did feel quite successful. Um, It's just funny kind of looking back at the way I talked about success five years ago versus how I feel about it now is, is, is interesting. Well, Um, interestingly, one of the things before you get on to um, defining happiness and success for you now, and maybe this gives you another moment to think about it, but what was also, what's just, can I make a little observation, which is that, in that talk, which is five years ago, and in the book now, you you're quite careful to like sort of uncover what's less glamorous in the mm. organizations that you've worked in and in the lifestyle that you have. So, like you talk in the book about having to work very long hours. You talk in the, I think in the talk you mention um, I was doing all this amazing stuff, but I couldn't afford the expensive tampons. Like there's all these little, yes. <laughs> little things that you mentioned in there that are really like, it feels like you're telling your 18 year old self or you're telling other people who are, who are just entering the world of work, Hey, it's not quite as glamorous as you think it is. And I'm not quite as successful yeah. as I think I am. And it feels like that's sort of always on your shoulder a little bit. Like if like I kind of felt that a bit through the writing in this book as well. Yeah, I think I I don't like it when people don't tell the full truth. And I think, as I was saying before, I used to kind of exist in these extremes. And I think it's very important that when people talk specifically about work and success and happiness and careers and about kind of their lives, that we include both the light and the dark. Yeah. So I think it's, I mean... 
and like no shade to other business books, but so often they're not speaking to your average person. They're speaking to people who they only want to be a CEO. They only want to be an entrepreneur that does that runs their own business. They're not just, hey, you know what? I just want to show up to work and get paid because there's other stuff that I care more about than this. And that's fine. So I think it's really important for me to be honest about the kind of 360 degree experience of, of my of my working life or working experience um, because you know it sounds very glamorous to be headhunted and work for Google at a you know like a prestigious little team uh, there mm. or to work <laughs> maybe it doesn't sound prestigious to work for Jeremy Clarkson or to yeah, be, I was going to ask you about that one. <laughs> my God. (laughs) Um, But like, or to be an editor in chief at a women's lifestyle website where we take, um, you know, uh, street, what's called streetwear fashion. I can't even think of the name for it, but like, Hey, I'm modeling a coat on the street and you might be interested in buying this coat. Like, I think you have to tell the truth about those jobs because otherwise we're just going to keep existing in this cycle of people joining the workforce, expecting it to look and to feel a certain way. Yeah. And that's never the case. <laughs> and I, I still have to remind myself of that sometimes. Like I wanted so desperately to work, to work at Google. And I thought it was going to be a very specific feeling in a very specific mm. existence. And it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's let's uh, come back to what does happiness and success look like for you now? I'm skirting over the Google thing. No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> success and happiness now. Mm. It is understanding why I am doing something. It's understanding what what my kind of not even purpose, but what how do I want to feel in my work? What is important to me? And are those things integrated? Like uh, it's been a really (laughs) for everybody, but it's been a, it's been a difficult year. And I've spent the last two years um, investing in my career in a different way in, in writing a book in launching a podcast. And both of those things, as you know, are very involved (laughs) and can, can get expensive if you don't have uh, a lot of funds. Um, So, you know, not just financially investing in, in myself, but, you know, investing the time and taking the risk to do the things that I ultimately want to do. And so for me, it's finding the right balance of, what is it that you want to do and how do you get there and managing your energy kind of, I don't want to say correctly, but well throughout yeah. that and balancing your financial needs and one's own relationship with money. So I think for me, it's, you know, am I, am I sticking to the things that I know I really want to do and not getting distracted by money panic or ego chasing my ego or, getting offered something from somebody I might like to work with and then going, uh, is that, is that better than the thing that I'm currently mm-hmm. doing? Um, yeah. So I think, I think I'm obviously still figuring it out, but I have a much better idea of what it looks like uh, uniquely for me, like yeah. on a daily practical level than I have ever done in the past. Do you feel like you're a success now? 
Yeah, I feel like I feel successful in it, when I like when I think about you know where I was 15 years ago, or if I think about you know where where I grew up and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, or I think about you know me <laughs> cleaning up diarrhea at men's Starbucks bathroom um, when I was like 19. You know that versus this. Yes, I do feel I do feel yeah. successful, and um, but not by anyone else's marker or. Mm. Uh, any other form of measurement other than god i've always wanted to write a book and i've i've written one and i also have a healthy relationship with what that means yeah. i don't think it's going to like change my life i think that my life has been changed through the process but mm. it's not getting a book deal always felt like this thing this thing mm, that you right. know, if i could only just yeah. get the thing and then but i had done enough work to where when i got there in the end i was like Yep, it's a deal. And now I have to do a whole bunch of work. <laughs> Quite a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> I have to write the thing now yeah. and then promote the thing. And then, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you talk quite a lot in the book about there's a whole chapter about being um like comparing yourself to other people and jealousy mm. and and some of those um, you know, like that kind of comparison culture. Um do you think do you think there's a specific set of issues there that relate to uh millennial women yeah <laughs> definitely i think i think it directly connects to millennial women and social media and then i think girl boss culture yeah. is tucked in there as well and like a really hideous three-way um venn diagram um i think that particularly sort of my generation of woman. So I'm 35. So I'm an elder millennial. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we grew up with the internet, thankfully not in our, not for me, it wasn't that prevalent in um, when I was a teenager, as far as like social media goes, like I just missed my space in Facebook. Yeah. But I think there's, the glamorization of of like working for yourself. And I'm thinking very specifically, I think probably from the lens of a writer, but you know, we had Carrie Bradshaw and then Hannah Horvath on girls and Phoebe Waller bridge now. And there's this, there's this element of like self-promotion and showing your life in a certain way. And you know, the kind of, we grew up with like the Spice Girls <laughs> version of feminism <laughs> right. and, you know, telling you that you can run the world. And it, it's very different in, in, in actual real life or in your actual mm. work. And so I think that unlike ever before, we were given windows. We did, we still don't have maybe the role models that we want, but we were given a window into our peers existence that we were never given before. And have used that as a kind of marker for what we should be doing. And I know there's much smarter people who have done so much more research on millennials and identity and, you know, growing up with the recession, just as a lot of us were graduating from university or joining the workforce, there's all of these other things that play for millennials, but I think specifically for women and with social media and comparison, I think 
that it was that unique sort of window, what we thought was a window and not just like a, a shop display, a well curated shop display. Yeah. Um, that that was kind of like our measure for how we should be doing things or are we doing things right? And it was less about with like our kind of brand of feminism. It was less about women's magazines like generations before us and more about um, influencers and, and bloggers and a very kind of specific aesthetic. And so, and, and that's no better than the whole women's magazine thing, right? It's the same sort of edited lies that yeah. that we were kind of served before. So, um, yeah, I do. I think it's it's really complicated. <laughs> Maybe I'm not explaining it very well, but I think, yeah, for millennial women and, and social media, that that somehow is worked as a marker for us doing it right and being good enough and uh, how we should be looking, how we should be dressing and how we relate to one another. Because the biggest thing that's missing from all of this is how do we relate to other women, work with other women uh, and compete with other women in a healthy way and know that that's a healthy thing to do because that's something that, you know, we weren't really taught. So I think there's lots of really complicated elements to it. the other element yeah. that feels, um, I, I love the way you, I mean, the book is full of these little, um, uh, you can tell you've worked in journalism and, and particularly in journalism that is designed to capture people's attention. Um, what will dry up first, my eggs or my ambition is one of the lines in the book. And so <laughs> it feels like that's a whole other thing that, you know, women of all generations of well, certainly the last few generations have had that men don't have or don't have to the same extent, which is like family versus, um, you know, and and like bringing up a child versus career. And there's a whole load of comparison stuff around that too, isn't there, in terms of the whole notion of a, a woman who has it all and all those kind of societal views on it. Yeah, no, there really is. And what's what's funny is that I, so I have a whole chapter in that book about, I think it's called, um, When You Think You Might Want to Have It All, which I am very explicit in saying, I'm, I'm at the time of writing, I'm not pregnant, I don't have children. And if I do, I'm going to have to rewrite this whole thing. Um, I'm actually pregnant now and I'm due in a couple of months. And so <laughs> I have now had a complete uh, other side view of... Mm. Some of the things I kind of mentioned or dabbled in in that chapter, I'm like, yeah, holy crap, like that's a thing. Um, I think the the comparison thing, and you hear this all the time, oh, the mummy wars, the mommy wars. It's not even so much that in my, you know, <laughs> seven month experience thus far. It's it's the it's the expectations, the really loaded weighted expectations that are put on women from a very, very young age and are just kind of recycled and promoted in new and interesting ways throughout our life to where Mm. if you can't have children, if you don't want to have children, if you want to have children in a different way, if you only want to have one child, if you want to adopt, there are so many different ways in which you are told that that is not okay. And because you're told that that's not okay, you then kind of internalize that and then other women's choices and what other women are doing just becomes intolerable. Yeah. Um, and 
it completely kind of cuts off our empathy towards each other and our ability to support each other because some of this stuff is so painful. Um, you know, knowing that you are, you are able to have children and someone that you love dearly, despite really, really wanting to is not, is really, really difficult for everyone involved. And it, it's a, it's really hard to explain actually. It's, it's a, it's just sad. It's really, really sad and it's really painful. And, and I think it's because there's so much emphasis put on all of it and people who have children are just like, Oh, wonderful. You're, you're making the choice to have children. And it's just such a glorified romanticized thing that it just, it causes all of this crap between other women. And then even when you do make the decision to have children, then you you're faced with maternity discrimination. And, and we're seeing a lot of it with COVID and how, you know, pregnant women and, um, you know, things around maternity are just not prioritized at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a bloody minefield. Is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a, I, I have a son um, with disability and it, it feels like there's some similar mm-hmm. um, challenges there where it's like my version of how I'm doing life is just not going to be that sort of picture perfect viewpoint right like what his life will look like is probably not going to be what I expected it to be and and all of that and it and yeah you it is a really difficult thing to um I guess break free on free from in your own head so that you can yes actually define success on your terms rather than on those societal terms exactly because uh, I mean families just as with success families do not all look the same and they do not all function the same. And your version of a happy family will be different than someone else's happy family. And that's so painful sometimes because you're taught, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. This is the one way. This is the one way that you can get there. And when you have circumstances that mean that it's not going to be that, that it's going to be something else, which can be just as beautiful. That's still hard isn't it? So it's, Absolutely. and I think it, and it cuts off our ability to kind of empathize with each other and, and be supportive of one another because there's such binary views placed on all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left and I wanted to talk to you about um, two other quick things. Um, one is uh, what was it like working for the Top Gear lads? <laughs> it's so funny. No one has asked me that yet. I'm like, why is no one interested? Come on. Because um, you make like yeah, a one was, line was, comment in the book, like it was pretty interesting. And then you move on. It was so interesting. It just, it I know. Me. I'm like, what can I say without yeah. getting sued? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I, what I will say is that they weren't the worst part of working there by any means. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> There was other some other stuff going on there that was, you know, just terrible. Um, but you know, it, it was I don't know. I like I used to watch them. I loved watching Top Gear, and I wrote, which I'm confused as to nobody how nobody found this. But I wrote an article probably damn near 15 years ago about having a crush on Richard Hammond. So I spent <laughs> a long time being very like, who is going to find this? Who is going to bring it up and <laughs> embarrass me? And it never came up, thankfully. But um, yeah, it was, they are, I mean, exactly how you would expect them to be. <laughs> and a lot of it, and a lot of it, honestly, I don't even feel like it's their fault because a lot of, I think how celebrity, when you become famous and you see it so much with um, like childhood stars and everything, mm. 
when they become famous, they no longer have to develop as people. (laughs) They can behave a certain way. They can act a certain Mm -hmm. way and they become sort of frozen in time. And everyone kind of just like works around them because, oh, that's just how they are. Right. And so Jeremy doesn't have to behave in a, in a better way because no one is expecting that of him. No one is signaling to him in his work life, at least that, you know, you gotta, you gotta do better and not, you know, <laughs> like punch someone in the face or something like you can't mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Um, so. Well, there was a list, wasn't there? He didn't just punch someone in the face. There's quite, there was, quite a few several, There was an extensive list. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it was interesting. It was there was parts of it that were you know fun and exciting and it, bizarre. Like Richard made me a cup of tea once, and I was just like, well, "This is interesting." You know? <laughs> um, like, yeah, it was it was fun sometimes, and then other times it was kind of exactly how you would yeah. expect. It was just, it was all just bizarre. <laughs> also bizarre because I, I don't I don't know why I was there to be honest. Like I was a content expert. <laughs> But I didn't, I don't even have my driver's license in this country, so it was always just a bit weird. <laughs> um, and then the final thing: so you talk in the book about some experiences with bad bosses, hmm. um, and my next book is going to be all about kindness and kindness in leadership, in particular. Oh, wonderful! Wonderful. Um, so I wanted to know your thoughts on kindness at work and particular experiences of either of either kindness at work or of unkindness at work? <laughs> oh, it's so hard to think of the positive stuff, which is terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. No, it, um, gosh, I think obviously it's something, I'm really glad that you're writing this book because it it's like the thing that is missing because kindness is kind of based in empathy and vulnerability and just empathizing with other people. Um, I think I think that the unkindness that I experienced was just not listening to me. Mm. I would try it towards the end with one, with one of my bosses. I just, I just got to the point where I was like, I cannot think about the correct way in which I am supposed to be managing this or go into some sort of corporate script or strategic negotiation mode it i was i only i can only be just honest with this and just go in and you know be myself and be authentic while still you know having some kind of like protective barriers up psychologically right you don't want to just be like completely naked in a situation like that but you know just just being honest and transparent and just kind of being like dude like what is like what is going on when i when i try to you know do x y and z like you're just i feel like you don't trust me i feel like you don't trust me to run my team you know and when you go into something like that thinking oh this will connect with them they'll they'll see me they'll hear me and my bit of humanity that i'm exposing will speak to their humanity and they'll see me back and, um, you know, be a human. Mm. And then that just didn't happen. And then it didn't happen with some other folks that I thought would be able to help me in that situation as well. And that sort of uh, inability to just kind of connect with someone else's humanness and just acknowledge, yeah, this is really crap, but we have to do X, Y, and Z. That 
is really, really demoralizing and really unkind, I think. So, but what that did do, which ended up being a kindness actually, is that it reminded me when I was in my next job, when I was at the pool and everything was going really badly to be honest, see other people's humanity, Mm -hmm. be as kind as possible to them because they must be feeling in some way or another the way that I was feeling when I was confused and angry about what was going on with my job. So, you know, it it was an inadvertent uh, chain of events or reaction that they weren't trying to be kind to me, but it ended up helping me in the long run, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Disappointingly, I'm trying to think of like a kindness, a kind moment at work, and I... Well, I was going to ask you about, well, let's turn it around onto you. So you had, you had some of those experiences where you didn't feel like you were seen or heard and you didn't yeah. feel like that connection of humanity. So have there been things that you've tried to do? So like when you were at the pool, for example, and you know, you're, you're the leader there, right? Uh, like, so you get to set the tone. Were there things mm-hmm. that you were particularly trying to do that would promote that sense of connection and that kindness. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was really important because this had been a, an established team that had been together for a while. And I know that they had had some difficult times and any time of transition, when you're getting a new boss, when, especially when there's multiple new positions um, in, in the senior leadership that have changed, I know how um, scary that can be. And I yeah. know, cause I, I went through that um, when I was at Buzzfeed. So it was really important to me that, I make them feel seen and heard, even though it was kind of exhausting, to be honest with you, because I did, yeah. I, I met and I had coffee with every single person that on the team and wanted so was that to, when you got there or you talking about as, when on a, I, as yeah, a regular? When I got there, yeah. yeah. Um, I met with a couple before I started because they were going on holiday, but um, yeah, I sat down with each and every person and and wanted them to know that I, I cared about what they did and wanted to understand what it was that they did and how are they feeling and, you know, what are, like, what are your kind of hopes for the next few months? And just to kind of like, I'm a human, I'm new at this job, I'm trying to figure it out, but I care about what it is that you do. And I want you to know that if you're feeling unsettled, that that's all right, I get it. Yeah. Any questions, please let me know. Um, and it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. And then, LOL, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but again, not a, it was it was fine. Yeah. But not the things that weren't fine were not in my control, right? So, mm. yeah, <laughs> I tried to set the tone well. <laughs> But setting that tone, I mean, that feels like so, in in some ways it feels so basic. And then in other ways, it feels like the most important thing in the world, right? Like sitting down, having coffee, listening, Mm. like it's not rocket science, but there are places where that just doesn't happen. Exactly. And I, and I think I, in, in talking more about this book, and I think I even say it in this book, I'm like, I, some of this stuff is just really basic. Some of it's just so basic and so obvious, but these messages about work, about management in particular, get so spun and and, and they try to make it sound really confusing and like you have to do all these steps and there's these different frameworks for how you should be doing it correctly. And obviously, the more and more people you manage and the more senior you are, it does get really complicated and it does get hard. But at the heart of it, it is simple. And connecting with other people and listening and mindfully listening to people yeah. and just being 
basically decent to other people and polite, those things will always serve you so well, no matter if you're a CEO or you're you're the intern. It's just, you know, being polite, being able to have a bit of self-awareness and connect with other people just even a little bit makes such a big difference. Yet I think we've just got so wrapped up in our own ideas of ambition and uh, there's such a lack of boundaries and everything that it just, we've just created these really toxic, overworked working environments where there's no time to even just basically be polite to somebody. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That feels like a really good note to end on. Um, So uh, do you want to just tell people where they can get the book and where they can connect with you and uh, yeah, anything else you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. And it's published by Penguin Business. And that's out on hardback, ebook, and audiobook on the 14th of January. Um, you can go to my website. So Kate Sevilla, C-A-T-E-S-E-V-I-L-L-A dot com forward slash book. And there's a link where you can pre-order there. Um, and then on pretty much every social f- platform, I'm at Kate Sevilla. <laughs> Great. So, um, so do connect with Kate. I could talk to you all day, um, but it's been lovely having you on, on Beyond Busy. So yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. So thanks to Kate and to Penguin for setting up that interview. Really love talking to her and um, I can definitely see us getting Kate back on the podcast in future as well. My voice is just dying, man. I, I, did, a, I did a one and a half hour uh webinar thing earlier today for a client and it was the only talking i've done all day but like it just did me in and you know i've just got to record this today so you just have to you know deal with my kind of wispy voice feel a bit like you know phoebe in the episode of friends where she's got a cold and she has to like still perform so i'm hoping that i have you know a kind of sultry jazz vibe going on rather than uh, it just sounding terrible so, uh, yeah, that's that's it for this week. Um, just wanted to also say you made it out of January. So congratulations. It just feels like it's been a, a really rough start to the year, hasn't it? But um feels like the nights are going to get a little bit shorter and the days are going to get a bit longer. And we're nearly there, everybody. So hang in. Uh, so I hope you're okay. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Just to say our episodes are sponsored by Think Productive. So if you're interested in productivity workshops and coaching and stuff, go to thinkproductive.com. And if you want to sign up for my weekly email, actually, we've got a whole new thing now, which is you can go to grahamalcott.com forward slash links. And there you'll find links to kind of everything I'm doing right now. So uh, including signing up for my weekly email rev up for the week. So go check that out. We'll be back with another episode in a week's time. We've got a couple more audio ones and then we go full video on Beyond Busy. So very exciting. All the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com as always. And we will see you next week. So until then, take care. Bye for now.